Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm your host, Evan Gottesman. The coronavirus pandemic has already changed the world. Billions of people are in some form of lockdown right now, probably the largest shared experience of any kind since the Second World War. That raises a lot of important questions. What does the world look like when this crisis recedes? What does U.S. foreign policy look like when this is all over? How do we talk about other things that are not directly related to the coronavirus? And more specifically, how are we going to look at the Middle East and Israelis and Palestinians in particular? Here to discuss these questions with us is Ilan Goldenberg. Ilan is Israel Policy Forum's policy advisor. He also is a senior fellow and director of the Middle East Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. Prior to joining CNAS, Elon worked in the State Department and the Pentagon on Israeli-Palestinian and Iran issues under the Obama administration. Elon, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. So everyone's heard the jokes now saying that this past week has been a long decade and so on, but it really is hard to comprehend how fast things have changed in a very short period of time. I mean, it was just three months ago that the U.S. killing of Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps General Qassem Soleimani and the seemingly imminent threat of war with Iran was all that was topping the headlines. And certainly Iran hasn't gone away. Iranian proxies recently killed American and British troops in Iraq last month, and Iran continues to prop up Syria's government in its brutal repression of what remains of the uprising over there. But none of that is really at front of mind for many Americans right now. What do you make of that? Sure. Well, yeah. Well, I think, Evan, it, you started uh, this podcast talking about how this is potentially the largest shared human experience since World War II. And I agree with that. So it's going to what it means for U.S. foreign policy in the Middle, in the middle East, what it means for U.S. foreign policy maybe generally, and then we can dive deeper into what it means in the Middle East, is a moment to entirely rethink how American foreign policy is actually viewed. Because the last major shock we had to the system, something like this, it's probably 9-11. And frankly, I don't even think it was as significant. A moment where you know a huge threat came to the United States, where people felt it very personally, their own security threatened, and that threat came from abroad. That's what you have in common with this current experience. And at that moment, it really entirely reshaped the way America viewed the world and the way we talk about foreign policy. I mean, the day before 9-11, we were talking about, you know, the post-Cold War era. Everything was great. America was the leader of the free world. Um, unipolarity, thinking about different transnational challenges um, that might affect us all, like, from the perspective of, like, the end of history, right? Like, there would be no competition. Democracy had won. And the day after, it just entirely reset the entire experience. And that's what's happening now. Like, when this is over, and it's going to be a while. It's not going to be a few weeks. It's going to be a couple of years, probably, or 18 months. But when, when it's finally totally over, um, we have a vaccine and people are back to normal, Uh, This experience is going to just totally shuffle the American public's views on like what matters and what's important in foreign policy and in the world. So like you were saying, before there was coronavirus, there was 9-11, and that was the defining moment for an entire generation. And you started to hint at the really profound impact that that had on American foreign policy, including two wars in Afghanistan and in Iraq 
and a heightened interest in the Middle East writ large, including in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Of course, that's not to say that there wasn't an interest there before. Certainly the peace process was underway before 9-11. But what do you think is going to be prioritized after the coronavirus crisis? Again, accounting for the fact, as, as you've said, this may be a while. And what things do you think may end up having to play second fiddle to new priorities? After 9-11, we did have a focus on the Middle East. And it was primarily about terrorism, but it really sort of defined everything. You know, if you looked at news coverage, even two months ago, like you said, the conflict with Iran was at the top of all the headlines, even though Iran is not that big of a country. I mean, its per capita GDP is like somewhere between Michigan and Maryland. You know, you're talking about a country a fraction of the size of the United States with really no military capabilities that can defeat us, I mean, can cause some damage. But you had this disproportionate focus. That's going to go away. The disproportionate focus on the Middle East is going to go away. I mean, we'll still have to think about the Middle East. I hope people like you and I still will, and people who listen to this podcast still will. But I can see, you know, there's a couple of different ways this can go. At least I think of about four big questions that we might see going forward. One is, are countries across the globe going to come closer together because of this or further apart? So it could be that the reaction is, you know, build walls, build borders, xenophobia, cut off trade, separate supply chains. A lot of these things are already starting to happen. A lot of them are happening under Donald Trump, but you can certainly see a major xenophobic backlash and really taking America first to a whole new place. Alternatively, it could be a moment where we say to ourselves, okay, look, we have these huge global problems that require global solutions. So let's rethink our institutions for the 21st century. Let's think about challenges like global climate change, pandemics, terrorism falls into this category, mass migration, and figure out what are, how do we update things like the UN and the G7 and the G20 and all these international institutions and build new ones to jointly deal with these problems that frankly go across borders. So That'll be like one major question. I think a second major question will be what happens in terms of great powers? Like who comes out stronger from this? Like right now, there's all these stories about how China is doing well and they're doing mask diplomacy, right? They're trying to deploy their aid all over the world and, you know, making the case that, that they've had a more effective response to this. And we're kind of behind the curve and maybe things go that way. And this becomes a huge moment like World War II where afterwards China's relative power to the United States rises pretty significantly the way ours did in the aftermath of World War II. Right. You also get the competing stories, though, that they undertake these aid efforts and then the equipment that China's handed out doesn't actually end up working. Right. It could totally go the other direction. That, that's exactly right. Where, you know, actually at the end of the day, people are going to look at the situation and say, this was China's fault. The, the, there are regulations on like what people eat and, the, and, and, you know, which started this virus in the first place the lack of transparency, the lack of alerting the world, and then, like you said, you know, the, the faulty aid. And it could be that America comes roaring back. I mean, we have a history of starting slow on major crises, and, and then we get our act together, and we still have, you know, pretty incredible resources to bring to bear when we do that as a nation. So, you know, that's the second big question, is like, which way does that go? You know, and then there's a couple of other ones. One is more domestic. What happens here in terms of like the welfare state. I mean, we had announcements, you know, this week now of 6.6 .6 million new unemployed 
and yet most of our healthcare insurance is tied to jobs. So is there a rethinking of things like Medicare for all? Is there a rethinking of things like universal unemployment uh, insurance? A $2 trillion stimulus we've already had, and we're going to have a lot more. Could this be like the Great Depression that spurs off a whole new social contract in the United States and across the globe? Or does it actually just fuel more inequality, right? Like where some people are able to just sit in their homes and ride us out or ride it out in, a, in their vacation homes while others on the front lines, blue collar workers have to go in and, and be exposed to this constantly to make sure people get fed. And, and then I guess the fourth question is questions about surveillance and freedom and work to, to get back to some kind of normal life. We're going to have to have significantly more surveillance into our health to be able to monitor who has COVID-19. Um, will governments use that, as you've seen in Hungary, to actually take away more rights and really become more invasive? I mean, as you've seen with some of the moves Bibi Netanyahu has done, or like, is this actually a moment for transparency? Because as we go through this whole process and learn what, what, what went wrong, a lot of it had to do with the government not being honest with people about what was coming and preparing for it properly. I want to pick up on a point you just made about what Netanyahu has done in this situation, undertaking these surveillance efforts, which have faced some pushback even from the courts in Israel. You mentioned earlier that the focus on the Middle East may fade a little, at least from the public consciousness. But I want to push back on that. You know, there's an element here of the coronavirus crisis exacerbating or accelerating current trends. And you mentioned that in other areas, such as, for example, what Donald Trump represents for democracy and nationalism and worldwide, but specific to the Middle East, it also seems like a lot of things are shifting on the ground because of coronavirus. You can look at Syria. In the past couple of years, there was a lot of evidence that the Assad government and the Russian Air Force were deliberately targeting hospitals, and that was awful to begin with, but now coupled with a global public health crisis, that's all the more disastrous, and you still have refugees fleeing into Europe amid the pandemic. Coronavirus has hit Iran especially hard, and that's striking a blow both to the welfare of the general public and to the leadership. The Gaza Strip is really seriously at risk now more than ever. And you had the letter recently from Senators Warren and Van Hollen on Gaza and coronavirus. And coronavirus also finally provided the catalyst that has ended, at least for now, I mean, things are changing week to week, the political deadlock in Israel prompted Benny Gantz to try to join forces with Benjamin Netanyahu. And West Bank annexation is now on the agenda kind of because of that. So it seems that these issues are still going to have an impact, not despite the coronavirus, but because of it. Oh, yeah. I think that coronavirus is, I, I, I think when I say that there'll be less of a focus on the Middle East, is, is I think there'll be less of an American focus on the Middle East. But I think what the implications for the Middle East and for Israel and for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, Iran and other challenges are very real. Like you said, I think this is a region that has a massive refugee problem in Syria, in Gaza, in, uh, in Yemen, in Iraq. I mean, we're talking about millions of people who are not going to be able to socially distance and are going to have very poor medical facilities to go along with that. And that's, you know, a recipe for a real catastrophe there. You have the governments in the Middle East, Israel being an exception, but most of the governments in, uh, surrounding Israel are characterized by a combination of authoritarianism and weak, ineffective bureaucracy. Uh, which is like the worst combination 
for dealing with a crisis like this. I mean, the best, I think, is a country like South Korea, where you have very effective bureaucracy, they were prepared, and they had democracy also, you know, um, for the purposes of transparency and moving early. But, um, you know, we then in the middle are countries like China, which are authoritarian, and, but effective bureaucratically, the United States and Italy less than China, but because but democracy and transparency at least force a response that's honest. But if you're in Egypt, there's no clarity in what the government in Egypt is doing, and it's not going to be good at sharing it. And this is Iran falls into that category, too. I worry about a lot of the Gulf states as well. And so I think it can be catastrophic from that situation. And on top of that, you also have like a major oil price crisis now in the Gulf, which I think a lot of these countries can hang on. But they also often act as sort of a backer of last resort for countries like Jordan. So Jordan would, in a scenario like this, usually get a lot of aid from, from the Gulf states or Egypt. But that aid is not going to be forthcoming. That money is drying up, which could be another destabilizing factor. So you put all those things together, and it's a recipe for just sort of deepening uh, what is already a very unstable region. Right. And the two issues will feed into each other because you had the price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia. But now because of coronavirus, there, there's a decreased demand. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, I mean, the price war in some respects was it was triggered by uh, what was happening in China and the decrease in demand in China as the Chinese economy was slowing down. So they really are intertwined. And then that sort of triggered this competition between the Saudis and the Russians. So We'll have to see. I mean, I think on on where things go with Israel um, and the Palestinians, the, the alternative argument is like you could have opportunities for cooperation also and maybe for some optimism. Like Israel today announced, for example, that it's not going to demolish any more houses in Area C at the moment during the coronavirus crisis, which I think is a positive step. Israel and Palestinian Authority are going to have to cooperate on how they deal with the public health crisis, but maybe, maybe even Israel and Hamas will, because things are potentially going to get really bad inside Gaza. And again, these viruses don't really know borders. And so maybe this is an opportunity for greater cooperation between Israel and Hamas or a ceasefire of some sort or trying to formalize things. I don't know. I mean, we'll have to wait and see how this goes, but it could create unpredictable positive opportunities too. I mean, in a, in a terrible moment where thousands of people are dying. And of course, it goes both ways. I mean, as you mentioned, the really unprecedented cooperation between Israel and the Palestinian Authority on things that aren't security, because of course, security coordination had been something that was long ongoing, and also Palestinian public support for it, because the coordination with Israel and other issues is not very popular. I want to come back to the U.S. interest and the U.S. public interest in these issues. Before the coronavirus struck, and potentially still now, Israel was one of the most fraught, if not the most fraught, foreign policy issue in this presidential election cycle. A lot of people in the U.S., whether they're foreign policy hawks or religious conservatives or people on the left, have very strong views about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and about Israel that really cut to the core of their worldview. The presidential election has kind of been thrown for a spin, given all of what's going on. Is this an issue that we're going to return to? That's something that I've been thinking about lately. Sure. So the thing about it, like this issue is, I think you're right, it does resonate. As a differentiator, it resonates with a very sort of small segment of the population, but that cares a lot about this issue. You know what I'm saying? On both sides of the equation. That means on the right with 
you know, pretty hawkish groups. It, and also because of religion with the Christian conservatives, it sort of plays an outsized role. On the left, too, it, I think it plays an outsized role with progressives compared to other, you know, issues, other conflicts. If you look at the level of American national interest versus the net, the level of domestic political interest, those things aren't really aligned with each other. So I don't know what it does in the long term. I think in the immediate term, like anything that's not coronavirus just doesn't break through, period. And I think we're going to be in that phase for the next two or three months as we go through the worst of this. As long as the majority of the country is doing stay-at-home social distancing, nothing else is going to break through the news, right? Because every day you're just going to be waking up, looking at the news and thinking about being reminded about the world you're in right now. But hopefully, you know, those restrictions start to ease at some point in the late spring or early summer, if we do this right. And then other issues will start to come back into the equation. Yeah, this will be on the list of issues that, that certainly matter. Right. And I mean, we just saw the news today that the Democratic uh, National Convention was rescheduled, but there's still going to be a potential dispute over the Democratic platform as it relates to Israel. And, and as, as you mentioned, and, and as we were talking about before, this is really an issue that checks off a lot of boxes for people on both ends of the spectrum. Again, it, it might be a small segment of the population, but it's a vocal one, and it really fits right in there. I mean, if you're on the right, it's a terrorism thing or a clash of civilizations thing or a religion thing, and on the left, it's a civil rights or apartheid. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I'm hopeful that we can find some kind of language on things like the, I would say, on the platform that can sort of bridge some of the divides. I think it's possible. You know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this over the last year in terms of the presidential campaign and, you know, and some of my work advising a campaign during the primaries. And, you know, my biggest conclusion coming out of that whole experience is that the way to bridge at least the political divide on language is not by attacking, you know, like at least inside the Democratic Party, um, support for Israel can remain absolutely strong. Support for Israel's security can remain strong. I don't think you'll have a lot of objectives on that from the progressive side. If you're able to add to the equation just more language that recognizes the humanity of the Palestinians and their concerns as well. That's all. You don't have to. It's not about attacking Israel. It's about adding language for Palestinians. So one huge example in my mind is just talking about Palestinian rights and democracy, security, justice, freedom, prosperity, things like that. Like right now, as Democrats, we often sort of have this thing, at least I'm not speaking for IPF, but I'm speaking for myself. We have this thing where in the past, what we'd always do is here are all the reasons we love Israel. And yes, I'm progressive. And therefore, I support the two state solution, as opposed to saying, here are the things we, we love about Israel. But here's why we think it's important for Palestinians to have these things like, you know, have their own state, you know, making the Palestinian side more human and recognizing the concerns there. That, to me, is by far the most important thing in bridging this language. And I think it's something that, you know, IPF is trying to do, something that a lot of Democrats are coming around to. So I think it's possible to sort of bridge this particular gap and divide. If the conversation around Israel changes, and perhaps because it's not an issue that's the number one source of partisan infighting, although I have my doubts that this isn't going to leave that realm, that it's not going to be, frankly and unfortunately, a source of, of acrimonious relations between the parties in the U.S., it seems like maybe there's potential also for a less political and more policy-oriented discussion around it. 
How do you feel about prospects for that? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's there's space for that, but you need a different Israeli prime minister. <laughs> Look, I mean, I think that there's dynamics here in the United States that have to do with Republicans and how they view this issue, how Democrats and Democratic base view this issue. But there's no problem. There's no question that Bibi Netanyahu has sort of decided to seize on a strategy that involves essentially jumping into American politics and really siding with Republicans and has now associated himself with Republicans. And by doing that, he really fuels this fire. And I think it would be really good for Israel and it'd be good for the American Jewish community and be good for all of us who care about these issues to have some of that heat go out of the debate. But you would need a different Israeli prime minister, not necessarily one who comes in and says, yay, now I want to work only with Democrats, or like, I'm totally going to change my views on subjects like Iran, because I don't think that's realistic. But one that says, let's go back to a day where we work together, we don't always agree on everything, but we don't have big political fights. And Israel is careful to not assert itself in such a partisan way into the American debate. And then we can have a more serious discussion. So I was kind of hopeful that would happen at some point at the end of these everlasting elections. You know, I'm more skeptical now and concerned but, you know, I think Prime Minister Netanyahu's time is still limited and he still hasn't formed a government and he's still under indictment. And so all these things, I think, still make it possible that, that eventually, you know, there's space for this. But as long as he is in office, I think he's become such a just negative figure with Democrats after his confrontations with Obama. It's hard to see how he takes some of the heat out of this. That's definitely been an obstacle in the U.S.-Israel relationship since the Obama administration. And that's also the impression that a lot of people have taken away from what the U.S.-Israel relationship looks like, because for a lot of people in the U.S. and in Israel, if you were coming of age in the past 10-15 years, your clearest political memories are of a relationship between Prime Minister Netanyahu and President Obama and then President Trump. Like you said, with the current machinations in the Knesset, it's not over until it's over. I want to close out with one last question about the Middle East broadly. You mentioned the potential for less of an official American focus on the Middle East. You know, it's impossible to say whether or not that will happen. There have been attempts before to reset American foreign policy priorities, whether it was like the pivot to Asia or the reset with Russia, that have not fully panned out. Of course, coronavirus is something completely different, but an American foreign policy retreat has been something that's been talked about for a while. If not the United States, is there another external power that moves in, or is this also an opportunity for the people in the region itself to chart their own destiny without or with less external involvement? My, my take on this, first of all, overall, to be, to be clear, is I don't think we should retreat and leave the Middle East. I think that you know, for five or six years now in Washington, but really even going back 15, there's always been this debate which says, look, the real threat and the real challenge is China. Like China is the long-term competitor. That's what the issue that should matter. But what keeps drawing us back into the Middle East? Part of it has been this disproportionate focus on terrorism, concern with this region since 9-11 that the American public has never gotten over. So intellectually, around policymakers in Washington, like pretty much everybody acknowledges like time to reduce our, we're over-invested in the Middle East, we're under-focused on Asia, right? So this might finally spur that on. But what I hope it does not spur on is like, okay, now let's just leave altogether. What I would really like to see is a sustainable, healthy, long-term approach to the Middle East where we do stay and play a role. Um, but we pull back some, you know, we're not putting two aircraft carriers into the Persian Gulf like we have right now. 
we're not taking over countries like we did, uh, you know, uh, in Iraq. It's not like ISIS isn't dominating the press all the time here or Soleimani isn't dominating the press. But instead, you have sort of like a healthy long term investment. So you keep American troops in a place like Iraq or Syria, a few hundred of them that are enough to work with local partners to, to keep the situation in balance. You know, we don't have to be the ones who solely by ourselves secure all the oil coming out of the region when the reality is China is the most important buyer of Middle Eastern oil. And at this point, most of almost all of America's energy supplies are met domestically from because of the shale gas revolution. So what I would like to see is a move away towards a more modest but still important American presence in the Middle East. And then, yeah, then China plays a greater role economically as it started to do. Russia in the last few years has played a, a greater role. It's gotten more invested. And everybody was like, oh, look at that. The Russians are, after the intervention in Syria, have become a new major player in the Middle East. But now they're finding their own headaches in places like Idlib where and in confrontations with Turkey. Being very involved as a great power in the Middle East is not exactly a fun or rewarding experience all the time. So I'm happy to share it with the Russians and the Chinese to some extent, as long as we have a smart policy that protects our key interests and helps our partners protect their key interests. And frankly, maybe I'll just close with this. Like the one thing we should remember, you know, Israel is not the Israel of 30 or 40 years ago. Israel's per capita GDP now is higher than most of Western Europe. It's got the strongest military by far in the region. It's perfectly capable of defending itself. Like, yes, the U.S.-Israel relationship is important for Israel's security and long-term viability. And we benefit a lot from the relationship with Israel as well. But, you know, Israel is also capable of handling itself on its own. So, like, we could get realistic about that. We don't have to be there as much for that reason either. So, anyway, I, I, I'm, I, I am neither for, you know, totally withdrawing or, like, staying as we are. But instead of finally, like, putting America's Middle East role in the proper perspective and place where it should be. It's an interesting outlook, and, you know, we mentioned at the beginning of the episode this joke that people have been repeating, that the last week or the last day has been a long year or a long decade, and things are changing so quickly, day to day, week to week, so we'll just have to watch all these issues and see how it pans out. Elon, thanks for joining us on this episode of Israel Policy Pod. Well, thanks for having me. And just a few quick announcements from Israel Policy Forum. I want to remind everyone to check out our Israel Policy Hub at ipf.li forward slash hub, where we have all of our online resources. It's a collection of digital resources, specially curated for online remote learning. And that includes two episodes of Israel Policy Pod each week. If you're listening to this episode, make sure you catch both of our episodes each week. On this program, Ilan and I talked a little bit about the crisis that's brewing in Gaza. I also want to recommend that you check out our episode from last week with Shira Efron, who co-authored a study for the RAND Corporation on the water crisis in the Gaza Strip. And we spoke about how that's playing out there now with coronavirus. And next Tuesday, we're doing the next installment in our Tuesday video briefings, which we're doing every Tuesday, 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. We're going to have Amos Harel, the senior military correspondent at Haaretz, talk about Israel's security response to coronavirus. And you can register for that on the Israel Policy Hub website. Thanks again for joining us. Stay healthy, stay well, and we'll catch you next time. Mm -hmm.